This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Trump and the NRA after Las Vegas. George Zornick of The Nation has a report. First up, is Trump crazy? We'll ask Amy Willens. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, our opening topic today on Trump Watch is a big one. Is Trump crazy? Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, got the punditocracy going by tweeting this past weekend after Trump's latest statements. Corker, you may have read, compared the White House to an adult daycare center, and he tweeted, quote, someone obviously missed their shift this morning. Since then... We've seen news reports of people reported to be, quote, close to the president who say in private that he is becoming more, quote, unstable and, quote, unraveling. Trump reportedly said a couple of days ago, and I quote, I hate everyone in the White House. (laughs) Now we have a best-selling book out where many psychiatrists express their professional opinions about the dangerous case of Donald Trump. That's the book's title. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and best known for her award-winning books on Haiti, most recently Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. So before we take up the question, is Trump crazy, let's start with a little about the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess the President. What exactly is this book? It's a collection of essays by well-known psychiatrists and mental health specialists looking at Trump's behavior during the campaign, before the campaign, and now since he's been president, uh, and trying to assess his mental health. Obviously, he's not their patient, so they haven't been in long therapy sessions with him. They do know a little bit, some of them, about his background, his family, etc. And they try to assess his uh, mental state. Well, this is relevant, they tell us, because of the 25th Amendment, which nobody really knew anything about until... Uh, January 20th, 2017. <laughs> the 25th Amendment is the other way a president can remo- be removed from office. There's impeachment, a vote by Congress, but there's also the 25th Amendment says if the majority of the cabinet determines that the president is, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, he can be removed. Uh, and this apparently includes, no one has ever uh, uh, applied the 25th or put into practice the 25th Amendment, but if the cabinet were to determine that the mental or emotional state of the president made him unable, in the words of the amendment, to serve, he could be removed. So we do want to know whether he is subject to the 25th Amendment uh, and the view of... Uh, of these psychiatrists is that they are professionals. It's their job to recognize craziness. They've trained for years to do it. They do it all day long. They get paid good money to do it. So uh, they have a professional responsibility to tell us about this. So, yes, they do have a professional responsibility to tell us about this. And uh, 
They argue that the 25th Amendment is applicable to mental illness as well as to, you know, complete a deterioration of the brain or incapacity to move or hear. So um, their argument is strong that we should know what they think of Trump's mental health, uh, whether their argument is strong that they should be the determinators, the determiners of uh, whether a president should serve in office is another one. I mean, they, there are various sections of this book. One is what's wrong with Trump. Then the middle section is should psychiatrists be even talking about this when he's not their patient? Is that a violation or do they have a duty to warn the public? And then the last section is what's wrong with us that we elected this man president? These are all very good questions. They're great <laughs> questions. The book is truly fascinating. Um, but the second section is the part that disturbs me most because we've seen what happens when psychiatry is in the service of the state during the gulag and the Soviet Union um, and in other places, many other places. Uh, one of the psychiatrists argues that, of course, he would never participate in a state-mandated uh, psychiatric evaluation, but against the state, he would. But who's to say when that's going to happen or what that means? Trump could be out of office and, mm -hmm. you know, it just doesn't really... It's it's very concerning, and can they really diagnose him? I will say for myself that although I found all the uh, initial essays about his diagnosis very interesting, they're not that far from what we already thought already, from what the L.A. Times wrote when they said he was unfit for office uh, five months after he took office. Uh, you know, hedonistic, lost in the present moment, un incurious, and narcissistic. I mean, partly... We've said narcissistic because we've seen that coming out of the psychiatric community. They've yes. been saying it for a while. These essays are not all just written 10 days ago when the book came out. But, you know, it's not that new. My my favorite example that, that uh, I think the editors bring up in their introduction of the uh, the dangers of enlisting psychiatry in the service of political ends is in the Soviet Union uh, uh People who believed that um, resistance to the Soviet system could lead to its overthrow were judged to be insane because that's got to be impossible and were put in mental hospitals for that's decades. That's the thing. I mean, who is to say what is insane and what isn't insane? We are all judging Trump, and I, I believe that he has a, a an insanely irresponsible attitude toward his office. Uh, one of the essays says he is the most dangerous man in the world today. I think mm -hmm. that's true. Mm -hmm. um, more than Rocket Man, even. <laughs> Kim well, Jong-un. Let's hold off <laughs> on Rocket Man here. And uh, we, have to, let's, we have to talk about the Goldwater rule here, which is yes. an important part of this book. Um, until Trump came along, the psychiatry profession had a firm rule that it is unethical for psychiatrists to diagnose people who they have not personally examined, and this be was because in 1964, when Goldwater was the Republican candidate running against LBJ, a bunch of psychiatrists went to the public and said, Goldwater is crazy, he's dangerous, he threatens to destroy the world, and the American Psychiatric Association 
voted and ruled and made it part of the canon of ethics of the profession that this is Im- improper, unethical, and psychiatrists aren't allowed to do it. And the American Psychiatric Association reaffirmed the Goldwater rule with specific reference to Trump in March 2017, two, three months after he took office. So, uh, what, what's So they're our- going against this new reaffirmation of the rule. And, you know, you can see why they did it, because would that we had Goldwater now. You know what I mean? (laughs) So he was crazy to some psychiatrists back then who had never examined him, but if he were the president now, he would seem a lot more uh, sane than Trump. So, I mean, I, I understand why the Psychiatric Association did reaffirm that. However, I think that this book is truly valuable, so I would hate to see them abide by it. And they assert that they have that they are going beyond that rule because they have a duty to warn the public. It's and called the, duty to warn. And the duty to warn is part of it's the almost, ethical yes. uh, um, rules of the psychiatric Right, profession. and the duty to warn is if you have a patient who is an imminent threat to others or himself or herself, should she be a female, um, then you have the right to infringe on the patient doctor confidentiality rule. And? And so they are arguing that Donald Trump poses an imminent threat to humanity. So not just one person, yeah. but all of us here. And thus they have a, a duty to warn, as one of them wrote, no, this is Nanette Gartrell and Dee Mosbacher in an essay called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands and His Finger on the Trigger. They wrote, the nuclear arsenal rests in the hands of a president who shows symptoms of serious mental instability. This is an urgent matter of national security. The world as we know it could cease to exist with a 3 a.m. nuclear tweet. The duty to warn uh, uh, clause of the ethical code of psychiatry says specifically psychiatrists are required, required to, quote, report to incapacitate and to take steps to protect. So they're supposed to incapacitate their patient who's threatening to whatever, kill his wife, kill himself. Right. The image is fabulous of it, like uh, 20, uh, the 27 authors in this book <laughs> rushing the White House to incapacitate the president. <laughs> and, and take steps to protect. So that's what they are invoking in this book. And right. The, and so what they're saying is that the Goldwater rule and the duty to warn rule are in opposition to each other right now. And and that the duty to warn takes precedence because the danger is so great. Now, I have to point out that's exactly what they said that about the Goldwater. Goldwater. I remember it even. I was a little child, and I remember that they said that about Goldwater. He'll have his finger on the button, and he's yeah. a crazy man. Yeah, yeah. So... uh uh, now I want to go back to to what you said. There's a section on the f- the first section about diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, are they? You said, well, we pretty much know what they know. Do they know anything we don't know about Trump's narcissism, his aggression, his his uh, what else did they say? His his present hedonism. They they have ways of talking about it. And this is what I think is important for readers. And may I say, this is the first book I've ever tried to order on Amazon, and maybe I have eclectic tastes, that has ever been actually sold out on Amazon. 
They had no more copies in their warehouse. <laughs> well, and let me say, <laughs> then I tried to get copies from the publicity department of the publisher. They had no more copies. They had no more copies. So this. So it's a book that has taken the public's interest, uh, you know, by the short hairs. It's very interesting to everybody. And one reason is that although they say things that we know or have felt, their analysis is more interesting and more profound because of their professional um knowledge and experience. So there's uh, an essay by Philip Zimbardo and Rosemary Sword called Unbridled and Extreme Present Hedonism. And it, it's about it's about hedonism and seeking pleasure at every moment. But what it's really about is the extreme hedonists uh disregard for the past so past experience does not inform his present search for pleasure and affirmation and disregard for the future. So whatever gives him pleasure or affirmation right in the moment is what he needs, and he doesn't care what it will do in the future, what that seeking will do in the future. He wants your applause now, and so what if the world explodes in 25 minutes? So that's interesting to me. I never thought about extreme present hedonists. I didn't have that terminology. And, <laughs> and I think you weren't one yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in each of these diagnoses, I see a little well, of myself. I don't myself. think so. I don't think so. <laughs> um, but there's also a really wonderful essay by Harper West called In Relationship with an Abusive President. Ah. And it's about uh, domestic abuse and how the president's relationship with the population at least a segment of it that didn't vote for him is like uh his relationship with a uh, 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 husband say uh relationship with an abused wife well this takes us to part 3 which is why does the wife stay with the abusive uh husband and and of course what you could say is well there's nothing in this book really they don't have any any new evidence evidence about trump that wasn't available during the election and he got elected. So what we really should ask is, what's wrong with the Trump voters? Are they crazy uh, rather than what's wrong with him? And indeed, this is something that's occurred to the editors and the authors. And what do they have to say about this? Well, again, a lot of it is not so surprising to those of us who've been following uh, commentary on Trump and, and who've been thinking about Trump. And, uh, you know, one of the essays the writer writes about uh, seeing a woman interviewed at a Trump rally, and she says, I want to take my country back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he says that's exactly the situation with the Trump voters. They feel they've been removed from the American conversation, that they no longer have a piece of the American pie, that that their income since the 1960s has not changed the blue-collar worker doesn't have a job, all the things we've been thinking about, about the inequalities in America and the loss of the manufacturing class. So it's not that surprising that this is what they find. But but uh, in one of the essays I like the best by Thomas Singer called Trump and the American Collective Psyche, he writes about shadow energies hmm. and and talks about how this has been seething and seething during the Clinton era, say the Clinton-Obama era, if you want to stretch out the Clinton era a little farther, um, and that Trump has brilliantly tapped into those those shadow energies in the population. 
Well, it strikes me that that um, what is dangerous about Trump isn't so much that he's narcissistic, that he lies. That yeah, there have been other presidents. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, if you know, if you run through our recent presidents, we find many things that are diagnosable. Some were subject to depression. Some were accused of being delusional. Alcoholics. Alcoholics. Uh, compulsive womenizers. Uh, the big issue with Trump, it seems to me, that they point to is this combination of a lack of impulse control with this extreme aggression. And, and if this were a husband who is beating up his wife or kids, you know, that would be an issue for them. But it's the finger on the trigger right. thing. And it's the idea, the too. The nuclear trigger. The it, nuclear trigger. It's the idea, too, that when such a character feels rejection, they that's when they become violent. So if he feels somehow he's not managing things or he's not in control, that's when he's most likely to make the impulsive decision to do something really wrong. And it is indeed, it's the finger on the trigger. But uh, one of the interesting things that they write about, and, and I hate to say they, it's one writer or another, and I'm just remembering, uh, someone says Trump in that famous hot mic story where he talks about having a woman by her, that in fact Trump has all of us by the... Thank you. P word. Thank you. I don't know if it's sayable on the air. Let's leave it at that. We're leaving it at that. And that that is a problem. We're abused by this person and we haven't found a way to get away from him. And indeed, when you think of the 25th Amendment telling you that the cabinet has to decide if he's uh, unfit or unable, imagine that cabinet. We watched the cabinet sit there while Trump said, how do you like being in my cabinet? And they all went, oh, it's so great, Mr. <laughs> President. You know, he made them uh, publicly suck up to him. So are they going to really, appointed by him, are they going to be the ones to tell us he's mentally unfit? The book is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. It's got the name of the editor on it, Bandy Lee, a doctor. Uh, we've been speaking with Amy Willens. She's our expert on the 25th Amendment and uh, <laughs> the duty to warn. Uh, Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Trump and the NRA after the Las Vegas killings. That's in a minute on KPFK. When Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Trump and the NRA after the Las Vegas shootings. And for that, we turn to George Zornick. He's Washington editor of The Nation, and he's written a lot about the uh, politics of the NRA. George, welcome back. 
Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, when Trump ran in the primaries last year, the gun people, let's call them the gun people, had a lot of doubts about him. He, he was a New Yorker. He had no record as an NRA supporter. What happened then? Yeah, you know, it was pretty interesting. If, if you, I think that generally speaking, there are two types of like political gun enthusiasts. And, and on the one side, you have people who treat gun control sort of the same way that Grover Norquist treats taxes, where their main goal is just a rabid expansion of gun rights at, at the local level, state level. Um, you know, they use it to evaluate judges and certainly at the congressional level. And so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, they were pretty skeptical of Trump because here's this guy with no record on gun control, or to the extent that he had one, it was it was flavored with New York City politics, so he was actually pretty pro-gun control. Um, but for the people like Wayne LaPierre and, and, and folks in the NRA, um, you know, who treat the gun movement as kind of a culture war first and a fight for regulation second, I mean, here's Trump is just the, the perfect guy. He was actually the earliest endorsement in their history and, and just became the first president since first term Ronald Reagan to address their convention because, you know, when Trump is out there talking about, oh, MS-13 is overrunning our cities and, and Black Lives Matter has gone wild and crime is rampant and, you know, it was murder everywhere, the murder rate's up. I mean, that's exactly the kind of stuff that the NRA uses to, to sell guns and to create this sort of fear of a, a society run wild that, that people and, and specifically white people need to arm themselves to, to protect themselves against. You wrote for The Nation a uh, cover story about the NRA, and you observed that the Obama years were what you called an eight-year sugar high for the gun industry. Why was that? Well, you know, the, the gun industry has actually been in a long decline. If you look back over their 15, 20-year period, you know, gun ownership in general has, has broadly speaking, gotten less. Um, popular, you know, as public lands decrease, there's less hunting and hunting culture has just sort of become less widespread. Um, as, as things like all the way back to Columbine and, and other mass shootings, there actually has been a movement, uh, a market movement kind of against owning guns. But um, one thing that really convinced people that they needed to buy a lot of guns was this manufactured fear that Obama was going to come take them all away. Um, for the first half of his presidency, this was extremely ludicrous because Obama really never said anything about gun control. I mean, both in the 2008 and even the 2012 presidential campaign, you know, I covered that pretty closely, and he literally, literally never mentioned the word gun control once. I think in his convention speech, he, he briefly made a passing reference to, to keeping dangerous weapons out of the hands of criminals or something like that. But it was pretty remarkable because if you remember that the 2012 presidential campaign was interrupted, was basically suspended for the Aurora theater shooting that happened in, in July of that year. Right. Um, and that all, all the gun control groups were begging Obama, like, please, you know, this is a hugely visible political moment. Say something about gun control. And he didn't. And in fact, I think it was the Brady campaign that even rescinded their endorsement of him. Mm. But then, of course, Newtown happened and, and Obama did become very tough on gun control. And so, you know, the gun control, the gun rights movement, the NRA, used this, you know, pretty mild push for background checks as evidence that, of course, Obama is the globalist. Obama is coming for all your guns. And it just sent gun sales through the roof because a lot of people believed it was really going to happen. I have a friend who says the only result of proposals to uh, to put restrictions on guns is to increase gun sales. That's what history proves. I wonder if you agree with that. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at this Las Vegas shooting, um, you know, the, the big controversial um, tool to come out of that are these bump stocks, which basically no one had ever heard of before a couple weeks ago. And now the the manufacturer of those are, are sold out. I mean, you can't it, – it's actually a pretty small company. It's really just two guys in New England who are selling these. And, and they don't have any more left because people have gone and snapped these up, assuming uh, falsely, it turns out, that – Congress was actually going to do something and, and ban them. Actually, let me ask you about that, because the NRA said, quote, the NRA believes, this was after 58 people were killed and 489 were wounded in Las Vegas by guns that that uh, were modified with these bump stocks, which we never heard of before. The NRA, after that, said, quote, the NRA believes that devices designed to allow semi-automatic rifles to function like fully automatic rifles should be subject to additional regulations, close quote. Now, a lot of people thought, wow, this is a watershed moment for the NRA. They are moving towards a, a certain, some kinds of gun control, and if this could be the first step. Uh, uh, what, what has happened to the NRA's uh, uh, statement here? Well, that was it was really important to parse what they meant there, and I, I was banging the drum right away that, that this was a, a devious two-step, and, and it really was. What they said in that original statement last week, when everybody was really incensed that these tools were available that could turn a semi-automatic assault weapon, which is dangerous enough on its own, in, into essentially a, a fully automatic machine gun, um, you know, the NRA came out and said, well, we think these should be subject to additional regulations, quote whatever that may be, but they think that the ATF should evaluate that and look at it. Now, the ATF under Obama um, said that bump stocks were fine, and it wasn't because they were, like, pro-gun. It was because as as the letter of the law is written, as the uh, National Firearms Act and then the 1986 update um, defined a machine gun, machine guns are in the U.S. Code something that with a single function of the trigger can fire unlimited shots or, or until the magazine runs out. And bump stocks don't work that way. They they just bounce the gun off your shoulder and back into your finger, so it's almost like a jackhammer. By the letter of the law, that is not a single function of, a, of the trigger, so the ATF is powerless to say, hey, these bump stocks are illegal. Um, they've said that before. It, when members of Congress have written them letters in recent years saying, hey, we don't think these things should be legal, they've replied basically saying, yeah, we kind of agree in theory, but you need to write a new law because the law as it exists will allow these things. So the NRA definitely knew that. And in them saying, well, we think the ATF should handle this was code for, we don't think anything should really be done. Mm-hmm. And then they actually came out today and finally clarified that they explicitly oppose the bills in Congress that would rewrite, rewrite the law and would actually um, get rid of bump stocks. So there's been a rapid, um, they kind of pulled the wool over everyone's eyes because you're right, there were a lot of headlines of, oh, the NRA has like, moderated and they they're against bump stocks they were never against it they were trying to figure out a politically feasible way to not seem completely insane but also not have this new gun regulation come into place and it's worked i mean paul ryan said this week he thinks oh he thinks the atf should handle it and and congress doesn't have a role here Hmm. we've only got about two minutes uh Left the federal, uh, the Congress obviously isn't going to do anything about this, but there's been a lot of action in the states over the last decade or so. California uh, has a, a huge variety of uh, laws limiting guns, gun sales, uh, uh, checking gun uh, gun owners. Uh, where do we stand at this hour, at this week, this day, this hour, and, and what are our next steps? Well, Massachusetts just passed a ban uh, this morning or yesterday afternoon. It was on on bump stocks. 
Um, you are going to see rapid movement. I mean, the, the, the gun control debate has kind of bifurcated into a blue state, red state thing where mm-hmm. you'll see very tough laws in some states and, and not others. Um, the NRA and congressional Republicans, I'll say quickly, are, are trying to undo this by passing a, a concealed carry reciprocity law in Congress. That's their number one priority wow. this session of Congress. So to say, well, you know, if you're from Utah and you can get a gun by just writing on a napkin, I'm allowed to own a gun and showing it to the guy at the counter, that you can then travel to California, New York, anywhere with tough regulations, and since you bought it legally in a different state, the police have to let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, that would basically eliminate t- a lot of tough gun control laws in the blue states, and it's it's a way that the NRA is trying to work around this, this state-level progress that has been made. And just in closing, let's look at the gun folks' argument that what we need is more, quote, good guys with guns in order to make us safer. Uh, what do you think would have happened if several dozen people in the audience at that Las Vegas country music concert had pulled out their guns and started shooting at the hotel? I, I mean, obviously it would have been disastrous. You would have had bullets going into the windows. Remember, as, as the details are coming out now, there was a long period where law enforcement had no idea who was shooting, where it was coming from. So it also creates a real problem for police, this, this theory, and a lot of them actually push back against it because police are rushing into this very kinetic situation and they see a civilian with a gun and they don't know, is this a guy yeah. doing the mass shooting? Is this a vigilante or what? So it, it would just be a, a very dangerous situation. George Zornick, he's Washington editor at The Nation, writes about Trump and the NRA and other topics for thenation.com. Thank you, George. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Amy Wilentz, took up the question, Is Trump Crazy? Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Trump Watch PCAST, on Facebook at Trump Watch Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same, same time on this same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.